let's open up our Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. We are going to spend both Sunday school and worship in the book of Genesis. Um, I'll say something a little bit more um, in the worship service, but between um, next Sunday being our Thanksgiving praise service, uh, our monthly uh, prayer sermon, the first Sunday of December, and then December holiday sermons and so forth, um, I don't think we're going to be able to make much progress in the book of Exodus. And so we got them out of Egypt. They're out. Let's press pause there and just we'll come back and pick that up after the new year. Uh, when my wife heard that news, she was uh, a little disappointed and uh, pleaded uh, that we stick with it. And so if that's your position, you have an advocate. And uh, But I said I just it would be too broken up. And so, uh, so we'll, we'll do more, uh, kind of fill in the gaps with more one-off sermons uh, uh, to tie us over to uh, January, and then we'll pick up the Exodus series there. But in preparation for, I was planning on doing something else this morning for Sunday school, but in preparation for worship, um, I wanted to go backward a little bit in the story. Um, I, I had you turn to Genesis. Let's go to Genesis 12. For our uh, for the worship service, we're going to skip ahead a few chapters uh, to Genesis 15. Uh, but for now, for today, we'll be in Genesis 12. Genesis 12, beginning in verse 10 through verse 20, is a passage about fear. Now, fear is one of those underrated sins one of those underrated problems that you don't really think about all that much until you get a little older. In fact, the first time I came face to face with fear, I was counseling a person with another pastor, actually. And I was having a hard time fitting this person's problems. I, I couldn't understand what the core of it was. There were all these symptoms of sin going on in their lives. I couldn't put my finger on it. And this pastor said to them in front of me, well, it's just fear. And that was an aha moment. I went, oh, I see it now. Since then, I want you to know I've seen fear do a lot of really awful things in people's lives. Okay, I'm sure you could add to this list, but this is just the list I came up with off the top of my head. And each one of these points, I think, has multiple examples that I've seen. Okay, And think through with me, because I'm sure you've seen it as well. I've seen fear destroy marriages in many different ways. I've seen fear lead to addiction of various forms. I've seen fear drive terrible financial decisions. And I mean terrible financial decisions. I've seen fear separate close friends, estrange siblings, I've seen fear make people extremely miserable, and I've seen ma fear make people into covetous, miserly, selfish people, people you don't want to be around. I've seen, people, I've seen fear cause lawsuits and unsettle families as families move from this place to that across the country. I've seen fear take men out of ministry, I've seen fear cause ulcers and other medical conditions that 
you wouldn't want people to have. I've seen fear foment anger among people, and I've seen fear create bad marriages that that should have never happened. Now, I realize that all of you could put more examples in there, couldn't you? Fear isn't something that's often talked about uh, in the local church. It's not something that's, that's discussed as frequently as it probably should be. But fear is a sin that has, um, fear is the root. And fear has so many sinful fruits that come from it. And what I want us to do today in Genesis 12 is look at a fearful episode in the life of Abram. And what we're going to see is fear that had roots and fear that caused all sorts of terrible consequences in his life. And then we're also going to see a God who was there to protect and shield and help, even when he was faithless in his fear. Okay, So I have you in Genesis 12. Go back to verse 1 very quickly. Genesis 1 through 11 is mostly about the creation narrative, God and his relations with Noah. There's more genealogies than, uh, than in the rest of the book of Genesis. And then there seems to be this great narrowing in the book of Genesis. We've been following a family, the family of Adam through the line of Seth, through Noah. And now we, we, we come across a man named Abram. The, the story is narrowing further, and from here, from Genesis 12, 1 forward, the book of Genesis is going to follow this man and his family. 12 through 50 is a chronicle of Abram's family. Let's read in 12, 1. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse. And in all the families of the earth, uh, uh, all the families in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And this becomes something of a theme statement for Genesis 12 through 50. God's blessing of the family of Abraham and God's cursing of those who attempt to get in the way of Abraham and his family. Well, Abram believes this promise, and he gets his family, and he journeys into the promised land, and there he begins to worship. And Abram, even at this time in his life, appears to be a wealthy man. There's a lot of people who are traveling with him, and in just a short time, we're going to see that he has over 300 people who've been born inside his tribe, or inside, not tribe in the sense of a Genesis tribe, but in the people that are following him around. He has a band of people that follow him, and he's he's seen 300 births in just that little group of people. So he's the head of of a large nomadic tribe. And in verse 10, something happens. Verse 10, something happens that's outside of his control. Now, there was a famine in the land. And I want us to know that the famine was uniquely bad. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Now, this was the first thing that happened that was really outside of Abram's control. 
more is going to happen that's outside of his control, but it's a consequence of his fearful, sinful decisions. Here he's where God tells him to be, and this severe famine hits that region. Now we can empathize with Abram. He wanted to be fed. He didn't want to starve. Furthermore, he's got all these people that he's responsible for, and they're looking to him for leadership, and they want something to eat too. Commentators have debated whether or not it was sinful for Abram to sojourn in the land of Egypt during this famine. I think it was. I think it was. And here's why. A few reasons. Number one, I'm not dogmatic on that. I, I could be mistaken. But I think it was for the following reasons. Number one, God didn't tell him to go there. God said, go to the land where I'll show you. And from this point in the chapter forward, Abram has lost total sight of God. We're going to see that in just a second. God has gone from his vocabulary. God has gone from his thinking. And all of his decisions now are rooted in fear and no longer in what God might be doing. Secondly, this was a passage written to the people of Exodus that we've been studying about. They've been in Egypt for 430 years, suffering underneath of slavery, and it took the mighty hand of God to get them out. And now they hear that their forefather went, there, went back. <laughs> and I think what Moses is trying to communicate to them is, there's no going back. Abram shouldn't have gone there in the first place and you shouldn't either. Later in the story of Genesis, Jacob will go, but that was at God's instruction. And this, in this case, God has given Abram no instructions to do so. Again, that's not definitive. I can't say for sure, but those are the reasons that lead me to that conclusion. God should have stayed with his group of people, in my opinion, in the promised land and trusted God to provide for him for food there. I'm not denying that the famine was severe. I'm not denying that it was real trouble. But God can provide for people. Well, haven't you found in your life that one fearful decision typically begets another fearful decision? One fearful decision puts you over here. Now you're in a bad position and you're compromised and that fear rises and now you have to do other worse things to cover for your previous bad, fearful decision. That's what happens to Abram. Let's keep reading in our text. He says to his wife, when he was about to enter Egypt, I'm going to read this whole paragraph and I want you to notice something. I want you to notice what's not there. Notice what isn't in this paragraph. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you're a you are a woman beautiful in appearance. Well, ladies, that's a pretty good start, right? And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. 
And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. What have we noticed? By the way, camels were the luxury sedan of the ancient world. That was a big one, saved the best for last. These were gifts that Pharaoh was sending to Abram. What did you notice was absent from that paragraph? God. God is nowhere mentioned, is he? Now, let's kind of work through the facts of that story. Sarah, Sarai, by all biblical indication, was a woman of miraculous beauty. Um, her beauty and fame the, the fame of her beauty stuck with her to her dying day. Um, you know, uh, commentators have tried to explain that. One explanation is that most women back then would cover their entire bodies except for their eyes. And um, that, that, that ancient people saw, especially Egyptians, that was the trait of women that they found most beautiful. And that Sarai must have had just the most electric set of eyes that anybody had ever seen. Okay. In my opinion, I think that's a little thin. It's probably part of it. I, God, if I can believe that God gave Sarai a child at 89, I can believe that he retained her beauty well into her advanced years. She was a knockout. Just absolutely, completely beautiful. And everybody who saw her, that was the first thing they noticed about her. She was stunning and striking in her bearing. And Abram, who probably didn't pick her to be his wife, that was probably thanks to Terah, his dad, Abram now it's like, oh no, I've got a beautiful wife. <laughs> and I want you to notice what he does here. He is Abram, Abram is right about some things, and he's wrong about some things. He's right that his wife is beautiful. He's right that the, that the Egyptians noticed. He's right that they would take her. What was he wrong about? He was wrong that they'd kill him. He was right that they would treat him well for her sake. But he was wrong that he could keep her. He was right and he was wrong. But this fear led him to ask his wife to tell this lie. So they go down into Egypt and notice where all of Abram's faith is. Gentlemen, he takes his faith off of God and he plants it on his wife. And that is a position a wife should never be in. That will crush your wife. And I see men do this often. They take a lot of hope that they should have on the Lord and they plop it onto their wives and their wives get crushed by it. He, she now becomes the object of his hope. 
tell this lie so that I will live. Tell this lie so that it will go well for me on your behalf. Now, I don't know that the ancients had a word for this, but we do. Somebody tell me what this word is. He has lied, but he's done something else as well. He's deceit, yes, what else? Starts with an M, I'll give you a hint. Manipulative. He's manipulating her. Honey, I'm going to die if you don't do this. Honey, for my sake, so it will go well with me, will you tell this lie? And Sarai, to her discredit, goes along with it. I, I can only imagine if I tried to run this by my wife, whew, I don't know. <laughs> my, home, my wife is home probably watching right now. Uh, Schaefer was not feeling well this morning. She, she stayed home with him, but I don't think I would try this on her, okay? <laughs> I don't think I would try this on her. That would fly like a lead balloon. Um, well, Sarai goes along with it. And wouldn't you know it, Pharaoh's plan works too good. I'm sorry, Abram's plan works too good. Suddenly, his wife is taken from him, and he's thinking, I didn't want her taken from me. I just wanted to keep her close, and I would kind of play the authorities off on each other, and I would pretend that she could potentially be available, but then as soon as the famine ended, I would pick her up, and we'd absconce out of the land, and we'd be scot-free. But just as the famine was a force outside of Abram's power, so was the um, power of Egypt. He was incredibly naive about what they would do. And they took her, and now, Abram is thinking, now I'm in a pickle, my wife is gone, they think she's my sister, and what do you know shows up? Gifts start showing up at the house, or at the Airbnb, wherever he was staying. Because, as we said before, she is a miraculously, shockingly beautiful woman. And suddenly, Stuff starts showing up. Servants appear. Pharaoh has sent me to you as a gift. Okay, I'm a chef. What would you like for tonight? I don't know. Oxen, teams of oxen show up. Uh, imagine, imagine. I was, I, I was telling somebody the other day. I, I, it was several years ago. I was, I was looking for a used car, and I saw this car pop up on KSL. It was a V12 Land Rover. It was a Land Rover with a V12 Jaguar engine in it. And he was giving the thing away. And I thought, this is too good to be true. I drove down there. I turned that car on. And I'm telling you, it growled like a Jaguar when you turned it on. It went, and I was immediately in love. I was smitten with this Range Rover that the guy was giving away. I thought, surely there's something wrong with that. I drove around, it was perfectly fine. Oh, it had all the bells and whistles inside. Felt like a king driving that thing around. Long story short, it would have been so expensive to repair, to put gas in, to ensure that you could afford to buy it, but you could never afford to keep it, or at least I couldn't. And so I didn't buy it. But imagine, you're there at the house, and suddenly Range Rovers, plural, show up. Not the used ones, the new ones. 
Those were the camels of the ancient world. This is for you, Abram, because we would like, what else might you want so that I could buy your sister from you in marriage? And it's funny how fear turns, fear turns. Abram is now too afraid to tell them what has actually happened. And so he accepts the gifts. Fortunately for Abram, God was watching. God was protecting, God was blessing, even when Abram was being faithless. Verse 17, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Now somehow, the Egyptians got wise to what was going on. They weren't, I'm sure there was a period of investigation when Pharaoh wakes up with some sort of plague. We don't know what the plague was. I can only imagine that the writer of this is being fairly um, uh, nondescript about what the plague was. In other cases, God prevented people from having childbirth. In another case where God says he struck somebody with a plague, it was ulcers all over their bodies. Whatever it was, it was severe and it was awful, and Pharaoh started doing some investigation. It didn't take him long to find out that there was some lying going on. And Pharaoh calls Abram into his presence. And Pharaoh, I can't think of a better way to say it, Pharaoh dresses him down. Listen to the string of questions that he asks. And maybe you've been in this situation where you're in the wrong and somebody is questioning you, but they're not really questioning you. They're peppering you with questions, but not waiting for you to answer. And each of those questions drives home like a hammer blow to your conscience. Listen to what Pharaoh says. What is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say to me she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? What what are you doing? Why are you doing this to me? Your, Your lie hasn't affected you. It's affected me and it's brought suffering on me and my house. I could have done something terrible, adulterous, and taken your wife and suffered greater punishment. Why have you done this? Pharaoh gets very pointed. He's very personal. It's you, you, you. And me, me, me. Pharaoh took personal offense at this. He dresses Abram down. And then he's so abrupt in his command. Listen to what he says. He says, Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. I want you to know that in Hebrew, it's far more blunt. Behold, wife, take, go. That's it. Get out of here. Leave my presence. I don't want to see you again. And... I'm providing you a military escort. Not for your protection, but for ours. Go to the border. Now I can only imagine what the conversation or lack thereof was like between Abram and Sarai on their way to the Egyptian border with full military escort and all of the stuff that they'd collected. 
The only way to describe what happens here is that that Abram and Sarah got expelled for their own bad behavior and for their own lie. Consider how how good God was being to them. What did they lose in Egypt? Nothing materially. They lost their pride. Which isn't a bad thing to lose. (laughs) Unfortunately, this was not a lesson that Abram learned fully. And as we'll see, he's bound to repeat this. Let's look at some of the fruits of Abram's fear. Okay, Let's look at some of the fruits of Abram's fear. The first, foremost, was a loss of integrity. There was a loss of integrity on a lot of different levels. There was a loss of integrity and humiliation between Abram and Sarai. One of the worst things that men can do, especially as they see it in the aftermath of their decisions, is they lose the respect of their wife. And that's what happened. He lost the respect of his wife, at least temporarily. I'm sure it took her a while to regain her trust in him. They lost their integrity before Pharaoh. They lost their integrity before all those people that they were journeying with. I'm sure it was a long time before Abram felt like he could show his face before those people again. The loss of integrity and the loss of face was very real and I'm sure stung them very much. Another fruit of this fear was the loss of his wife. She got out of his presence and away from him. He couldn't talk to her. He couldn't love her. He couldn't fellowship with her. He went to bed lonely every night, as did she. Another loss was the... Another poor fruit was ill-gotten gain. Abram was suddenly flooded with ill-gotten gain. And I'm sure that for years on, as they would use that camel or that servant or that person over there, there was always that twinge of guilt that this thing was acquired in an ill-gotten fashion. That was a, That's guilt and shame that doesn't leave quickly. Another bad fruit was that Pharaoh and his house suffer. Now, was it right for Pharaoh to take that woman? Well, no. But that's what ancient kings and sovereigns did. In fact, that's what modern sovereigns do. (laughs) This is an age-old tradition of powerful men snapping up beautiful women when they see them. That's what they do. Yet, he suffers and his house suffers disproportionately. He hadn't done anything that would have been considered outside of his rights as king and sovereign of the land. And he suffers, (laughs) he suffers under God's hand. Um, Another bad fruit was Sarai was kidnapped and had to live in captivity. Even if she was living in the absolute lap of luxury, which I'm sure that she was, 
how fun can it be to have a luxurious prison cell? Even if it's the finest and nicest prison cell the country can buy, it's still not where she wanted to be. She was still being held against her will, and she had no ability herself to break out from it. If Pharaoh had time to suffer plagues and do an investigation and send all sorts of gifts, I don't know how much time elapsed that she lived in that captivity. But let's call it at least a month. And that's a lot of days to live in uncertainty. There was this humiliating confrontation that Pharaoh put upon Abram, and Abram and Sarai had to suffer underneath it. There was this prolonged expulsion from the land. It would have taken three or four days at minimum to walk to the border with full military escort. And that's, again, a lot of time to think about what's transpired and the humiliation. And I, I'm sure at various points Abram told the army officer who was with him, sir, you can go. We, we, we present no threat to you. And the army guard saying, I'm under orders to take you to the border. Um, and that's what I'm going to do. That would have been a humiliating experience. But probably the worst of all this, oh no, this is the second worst of all this, is that this failure sowed the seeds of future failure. The, one of the servants that Abram picked up on this journey was Hagar. And Hagar was the woman that Sarai acted faithlessly with and suggested that Abram take her as a surrogate mother. Now again, in that day and age, there was nothing inherently wrong with that. That was a common practice when a lady proved to be incapable of conceiving or bringing a child to you know, full term. Um, it was never assumed that the man was the problem. Um, it was always assumed that it was a female problem. And this, again, was common. It was an ancient form of adoption. But that's not what God wanted for his line. That's not what God wanted for Abram. He told him, you're going to have a child by you, biologically, through your wife, and that's how I'm going to do it. It's going to be miraculous. And while Abram couldn't faithfully see how God would miraculously provide for it through a famine, Sarai couldn't see how God would miraculously provide through the famine of her womb. And Abram handed her the excuse not to trust God. And then she handed Abram an excuse to not trust God, quite literally. Abram is going to make the same mistake again. He's going to go to Abimelech, and he's going to say the same thing. He's going to tell the same lie, and it's going to have the same consequence. And then this is something that scares me as a dad. This is a sin that Abram passed on to his son. And Isaac makes the same mistake and tells the same lie with another man who has the title Abimelech. And so, and that was only the second worst thing that happened. 
was this sowing the seeds of future problems. The biggest problem was that it created an apparent threat to the messianic line that God had intended to establish. God, through Abram, would bless all the nations of the earth. And he would do so through Abram and his wife and the eventual seed, singular, that would come from him was the Lord Jesus Christ and God wanted to establish this unbroken messianic line. This is a good lesson to us that sometimes when God comes to us with a command, we don't understand all the ramifications God wants to fulfill through that command. Abram didn't know about all the nuances of what God wanted to accomplish through him. That's not an excuse. God wanted him to do a certain thing. Go to the land, I'll tell you, and I'm going to bless you. Trust me. And Abraham didn't follow that. Now, let's bring this back full circle. We've been talking about a lot of different sins, haven't we? A lot of different sins. What was the root of them all? Fear. Fear was at the root of them all. And I dare say fear is often at the root of a lot of our really awful sins. Fear takes us places we don't want to go. Fear alienates us from people that we love. Fear causes us to do things with our means that if we saw somebody else do, we would immediately say, that's foolish. But in our weird, backward, fearful thought pattern, it seems to have sort of a perverse logic to it. Fear robs us of joy. Fear puts us in a terrible position to try to serve the Lord. So, What's the opposite? Let's not end on a negative note. How do you overcome fear? How do you overcome fear? Did you know that fear is irrational? You can't reason with it. How many of you have had children who are afraid of the dark? Okay. Can you reason with that? Can you walk in there and say, see, there's nothing in the closet. There's nothing under your bed. Maybe after you turn the lights off, you go and scratch on their door. I'm teasing. Don't do that. <laughs> Don't do that. I've never done that. I've chuckled at the thought of it, but I haven't done it. <laughs> you can't reason with fear. You can't reason with it. It's irrational. Fear doesn't make sense to other people. They'll, say you, they'll see that you're afraid, and they'll say, well, stop. Stop being afraid. You may as well tell the dead to rise. If you're afraid, you're afraid, and that's how it is. You can't reason with it. How do you defeat it? How do you defeat it? I'll tell you. You drive it out with a greater fear. And the greater fear is God. A holy reverence and respect and awe of God 
God will take care of me. God will meet my need. God says no to that. God is in control. What I need is more God. And eventually, that bigger fear of God starts to flood out the smaller fear of man. You've heard the phrase, fight fire with fire. I don't know how valid that is in the real world, but I do know that you fight fear with fear. You fight sinful fear with holy fear. The fear of God is the beginning, the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wait on the Lord. Have a holy reverence of the Lord. Feed your soul with the great, magnificent, sovereign purposes of God. And fear over here and over there will just start to dissolve. It won't be driven away immediately, but it will dissolve as your fear and confidence and expectation of God grow and are closer. For worship, we're going to advance one stage in Abram's life, maybe two stages, but you're going to see a man who gets afraid again, and God's going to talk to him. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to learn and this opportunity to uh, hear what you might have to say about fear and sinful fear. May we look to you. May we put our hope and trust in you. And may we fear you. May we fill our souls with reverential awe of who you are and what you've done such that it dissolves all these petty, small fears that have such terrible consequences in our lives. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.